Today's Bible reading is from、um, Galatians chapter four, verse one to seven. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons. God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, "Abba, Father." So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but in your perfect timing, you have sent a Redeemer. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for our gathering today, and pray that you would be present, and that your Spirit would grant us ears to hear. Eyes to see, hearts and wills to obey you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come near to the season of Christmas, what message do we have for the world in which we live? Do we have a message for our family and friends, for our neighbours and work colleagues? Well, I send them Christmas cards with "Peace on Earth" and "Joy to the World" printed on them. Well, that's nice. The Lord knows we certainly need some peace and joy in the world. Trouble is, if they're an unbeliever, that on its own is not a message. It's a bit like sending a, a food brochure to a starving man. What they really need to know is what this joy and peace is, and how to get it. The apostle Peter reminds us of this in one Peter three fifteen, where he says, "Always be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have." What is the hope that we Christians have? Hope at Christmas time and every other day of the year. Surely it is that God has fulfilled His promise to send a Redeemer, to send a Saviour. A lot of the people you mix with or speak with don't understand or feel any need for a Redeemer. Why do I need a Saviour? They say I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad either. Someone 
who was brought up since birth under communism and taught that there is no God and there is no saviour, asked me a couple of months ago, why do I need to believe in God? Now that is a great question. The answer is because he's there, he's real, and he's revealed himself either as our best friend or our greatest enemy. We need a saviour. We need a rescuer because we're sinners. Our nature and our behaviour is full of sin and God commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, way back in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3.15, when God pronounced judgment on the serpent and on his seed, he promised that the offspring of the woman would crush Satan's head. And even before that time, in fact, before time itself, in eternity past, God ordained that his anointed one, his redeemer king, would be the crusher of Satan's head. He is the one described by the apostle Peter as the lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. God ordained that a chosen seed would be traced from Adam and Eve's son, Seth, down through Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, by God's grace, Boaz and Ruth are among those chosen. That chosen seed continued all the way down through the history of Israel and the kingly line of the tribe of Judah, through David and Solomon, right down to Mary and Joseph. Throughout the centuries, God promised to send his Redeemer, his Saviour, his Deliverer. In the Old Testament language, he's called the Messiah. In the New Testament, he's called the Christ. Both words mean the Anointed One. And so we'll have a look at some of God's promises and the preparation for God's Anointed One. We talk about God's promises and we sing about them, but what are they and where do I find them? Well, the short answer to that question is we're to look in the Bible, God's word. And having looked and seen, do we believe? I'm sure Jesus' disciples believed that God would send his Messiah, the Christ, as he had promised. We hear Philip say to Nathaniel in John 1 verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But had they found him? This Son of Joseph? Really? Is that who he is? 
the son of Joseph? Truth is, it was Jesus who found them. The disciples were there when Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 17 and following. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he taught his disciples and he prepared them for what was going to happen, as in Luke 18 and verse 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. To be forewarned is to be forearmed, as the saying goes. But in spite of that, the disciples couldn't reconcile Jesus' crucifixion and death with what they thought they knew about the Old Testament. In fact, they're so overcome with grief that their hopes are completely shattered. Even after the empty tomb and the women saying they'd seen Jesus alive, they couldn't understand. They don't start to grasp the enormity of God's plan until Cleopas and his friend walk the Emmaus road and Jesus meets them and rebukes them. And it's a rebuke to us as well as to them. In Luke 24, verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he started to illumine their minds about the Old Testament. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And as the Gospel of Luke ends, Jesus gives his, his apostles the gift that they need more than anything else. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. By the way, That is part of the authority of an apostle. Not only had they been with Jesus since his baptism and they were witnesses of his resurrection, they were also illumined and taught by him personally. We don't have apostles with us in person today, but we do have their written words and the doctrine we can be confident in their teaching because Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. None of which can be said about the self-proclaimed false apostles that inflict themselves on people today. 
Now, I don't know whether you're up with some of the things that happen in Sydney in the last month or so, but there has been a supposed apostle uh, having meetings, and her name is Catherine Crick, and she is the lead pastor of the Fivefold Church in California, and she calls herself an apostle. And the other churches or so-called churches that you might find that have apostles are the Mormons. But again, they are false apostles. Luke 24 verse 27 says that Jesus interpreted all that Moses and the prophets said about him. But we'll just look at a few of those prophecies today. And the first thing I'd like to note is the prophecy of a deliverer spoken by Jacob, later to become Israel, in Genesis 49, where he says this, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. The scepter, the ruler's staff, the obedience of the nations all point to this deliverer being a king. Centuries later, when Moses was about to die, he said this in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now Moses, the prophet, delivered the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. But he points us to another prophet who will be the true deliverer. This prophet is the Messiah who will deliver us from our slavery to sin and death. Old Testament Israel's history is one of blessing, disobedience, decline, with God's prophets repeatedly calling the nation back to faith and obedience with messages punctuated with promises of a deliverer. Old Testament Israel, the most privileged nation on earth, failed miserably to live as God's people. Their idolatry and other sins eventually resulted in God punishing them at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, who took most of them as captive as exiles to Babylon. But even there, even then, God spoke through his prophets of a Messiah, a deliverer. And one such prophet was Zechariah, who prophesied that the deliverer and mediator of our salvation will be a priestly king who will rise from humble beginnings and reign over all the kingdoms of the earth. This is what he said in Zechariah 6, verse 12 and 13. Behold, a man whose name is Branch, 
for he will branch out from where he is. He will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. The Lord had introduced this ruler earlier in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8 where he says, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. And one of the things that he says will happen when he comes is the Lord will remove the sin of the land in a single day. The man whose name is Branch also links back to prophecies in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, and Jeremiah 23, 5, and refers to a growing thing, a sprout, something small, growing from lowliness to greatness. He is the righteous branch that will spring up for the line of King David, as Jeremiah speaks about. This sprout, this shoot is the Messiah who will remove the sin in a single day and build the Lord's temple. Now the point of looking at these prophecies and promises to show that the, is to show that the coming deliverer, the Messiah, the anointed one, is God's prophet, priest and king. Moses referred to him as a prophet. Zechariah refers to him as a kingly priest or a priest on his throne. Jacob, later named Israel, referred to him as a king. And all those titles rightly apply to our Lord Jesus in the New Testament. Such a Messiah is the only one who fits our need. He is the prophet who brings God and his word to me. He is the priest who represents me before God and presents a perfect sacrifice for me. He is the king who not only rules over me, but he rules for me, guiding, providing and protecting those who belong to this Messiah are the most privileged people on earth and will be in heaven. We'll end this section with some other well-known prophecies that we actually started the service with and one of them is uh, from Isaiah 7.14. Now Isaiah spoke 700 years before Jesus was born. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that name Emmanuel means God with us. That is, God became incarnate as a man. He became like us in every way except without sin. The other reference from Isaiah is chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, 
and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. Now we've always had documents of which the Bible that we have has been translated from. And prior to 1946 and 1947, liberal so-called scholars denied the authenticity and dating of the book of Isaiah. But then, at that time, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. 1946 and 47, they started to discover those. And when they were discovered, it destroyed the unbelieving nonsense of all these so-called scholars. At that time, the great scroll of Isaiah was discovered in a cave in Qumran. It's a copy dating back to 200 BC. It's just a copy, but it dates back to 200 BC. And evidence is that Isaiah truly prophesied the Messiah and the virgin birth long before New Testament times. The final passage I want to mention in this section is Matthew 2, verse 6. Here Matthew quotes Micah 5, verse 2, as the fulfilled prophecy of the prophet Micah, who also prophesied around 700 BC alongside Isaiah. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And the good news and the declaration of Christmas is that the waiting is over. God has acted The Messiah, our King and Saviour, has come in accordance with God's will and at his perfect timing. And so we come to Galatians 4, verse 4, God's perfect timing. But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son. These words tell us that the timing of Jesus coming into the world happened according to a plan, according to God's plan. Jesus' birth is the pivotal point in history. All human history has been leading to this great event. Messiah would only come after all the people and the events of history that had to occur had in fact occurred. And so at that first Christmas, Jesus the Christ came into the world according to the predetermined plan of God who from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That's from the Westminster Confession, 
chapter 3.1. But what does God's perfect timing look like? Well, there was political preparation. God so orders human history. He did, he did then and he does now. God raised up the Roman Empire from the ashes of the Persian Empire and the breakup of the Greek Empire after the death of Alexander the Great. And the Romans enforced what was known as Pax Romana, or Peace of Rome, and united most of the, the then-known world as never before. There was economic preparation. Rome had built roads and ports for military and trade purposes. There was cultural preparation. Greek was the common language for commerce and culture. All this made it possible for gospel preaching and literature to reach the world. And religiously, it was a time of great expectations. There had been no word from God for 400 years. These silent years, as they became known as, were times of false hopes, false messiahs. Messianic hopes were raised and then dashed. But then... The time had fully come. God did something amazing. God sent forth his son. And the coming of Jesus divides world history. It didn't happen by chance. It didn't happen by accident or coincidence. That great event marks the change in our calendar from B.C. to A.D., from before Christ to Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. That great event changes our calendar from promise to fulfillment. God sent, and the word there is ex apostello, and means God sent his son in the same way that an apostle or missionary is sent. And it's not just an afterthought. It's not a plan B. God doesn't do plan Bs. He only has plan As. Planned in eternity past and worked out in time according to God's perfect timing. God sent forth his son, not in heavenly pomp or glory, but in human flesh, born of a woman. As God had promised in the Garden of Eden that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, so Jesus was sent from heaven and born of Mary for that very purpose. His birth was as natural as any of ours, but it was also unique in that he was sent by the Father no other human being has ever had eternal pre-existence and no other person has ever had the supernatural conception that Jesus had. Born of a woman, 100% human, so that he can be our representative and substitute to save us. He had to be human 
in order to live the perfect human life that I've failed to live. He presented his perfect life to the Father as he hung on the cross as our substitute and sacrifice for our sin. He also had to be the divine Son of God for that sacrifice to be of infinite and eternal value, to buy us back from the slavery to sin and Satan and to set us free to live forever as the forgiven people of God. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. 100% human, 100% divine, one person in two natures, the man who is God. God. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. When it says he was born under the law, it means he was subject to all the demands of God's law. He was just as vulnerable to temptation as you and I, yet without sin. So having lived the life that I failed to live, he died the death that I deserved to die. As Jesus hung on the cross on that first Good Friday, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That word redeemed is from the slave market. A slave is set free because a ransom price has been paid. In the same way, Jesus paid the price demanded by God. And what was that price? The soul that sins shall die. The redemption price is fully paid and we are set free from the law of sin and death. But God does something else in that verse. There is a consequence and the purpose of God stated. When the fullness of time had come, God sent, his, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God's act of redemption brings every believer into a different relationship with God. We're adopted into his family. We're welcome as we become sons and daughters of God through faith. Under Roman law, a rich man could buy the freedom of a slave or he could negotiate with the parents of another man and adopt the son of another man. He would adopt him as his own son with full inheritance rights. Julius Caesar had no son of his own and he adopted Gaius, Julius Caesar, Octavianus, Augustus. 
appease the emperor, Augustus, who ordered the census that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Often a wealthy Roman will adopt a young man because he saw some giftedness or potential in him, especially if he recognized that his own natural son was a bit of a no-hoper. But God adopted us when we had no potential, when we were all no-hopers, when we were without hope and without God in the world. We're not God's children by nature. It is by grace alone that we are brought into the family of God. Having sent forth his son, God did something else amazing. Verse 6, God sent forth his spirit. Not only are we adopted, but God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts And the Holy Spirit is the gift of God to every believer because we are adopted as his sons. When we say sons there, we're thinking of inheritance. No son or daughter of God lacks the Spirit. You cannot be the son or daughter of God without his Spirit. Verse 6 again. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God's spirit in the life of every believer gives evidence of our position in God's family. It is the spirit who moves us and enables us to truly pray to God, addressing him as Abba, Father. Let me conclude with two passages of Scripture. The Apostle Paul said this in Romans 8, verse 14 to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And that last bit there is an amazing statement. Fellow heirs with Christ. All that Christ has is for us to share. The Apostle John said this in 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Redemption, peace with God, adoption into God's family and a godly inheritance 
These are the true gifts and the meaning of Christmas. But not just at Christmas. They're for eternity. Easter is the Christmas gift that God freely gives to all who believe. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible, indescribable, unspeakable gift. May God grant us grace to understand his gift. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your Son. We thank you for your Spirit who makes him real to us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Christmas gift of Easter. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.